This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Monday. It's the 28th of March. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot. And today I'm talking about fantasy schools, witches, fairies, wizards, academies for mutants and vampires, sundry creatures of the night. What do they tell us about cultural and educational issues and what kind of pedagogy have they got going on in them? Stay tuned for the next hour and you'll find out. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning again, everyone. Nice to see so many people online this morning. Hello to my regulars at this point. Um, I asked yesterday what magical fantasy schools people liked the best without giving you sort of any heads up about where I might be going with it, because frankly, I didn't know. It was a bit of a guess. And uh, here's some of the answers you guys gave. So Graham Plunkett said Gormenghast. Several people agreed with him. Um, <laughs> Some of you were anonymous, very sensibly, unlike me, who post my terrible takes online with my real name attached for my, my poor senior management to worry about. So forgive me in advance for the pronunciation of some of your anonymous handles. English teacher said St. Trinian's, the uh, Alistair Sim version. Uh, Cantab Kitty, the Buffyverse Watcher Academy. Leighton Martin mentioned um, the White Tower in the Wheel of Time, as well as Breakbills Academy from the Magicians. Hidden Dragon, 1979, the X-Men Academy. I think Eugene also went with the X-Men Academy. David Oates, Unseen University from the Terry Pratchett novels. Absolutely gorgeous. Rumination on Oxford and Cambridge and um, academia in general. Uh, Ali Youssef, Roke Island from the Wiz Diversity, which lots of people immediately said yes, that was their favourite. Um, and Eugene, bless him for his, his obscure nerdery, said the school in poltergeist the legacy a single run tv show from 2016 or 1996 i can't remember which anyway i'm intrigued i think we should all follow up on it um the ones that have been captivating my mother and i for those of you not invested in the long-running saga of the mcintosh family um i live with my mother who this i'm not doing this one for sympathy this is necessary for for the story here uh, my mother was diagnosed just about five years ago now, right, mum? With um, terminal lung cancer, they said that the normal, like, you know, the median lifespan for diagnosis was eight months, right? So well, we figured Christmas. And as we said at the time, she was either going to make it, she's going to die before Christmas and thus ruin Christmas, or be dying during Christmas and thus ruin Christmas again. So selfish. But as it happens, she's still alive. And we've had various things, as it happens, we have various things along the way that have been her... Her, her motivations for living and I'm sorry to tell you none of them have been me or her grandchildren or the cats bless us all but instead various media properties um the first one was murder on the orient express with Kenneth Branagh I don't know why but the one this year is um is a, the, the reason why this is relevant the one this year is the Scholomance series of books. The next volume is being published at some point this year. We discovered them, we binged them, these books, absolutely amazing magical school books, um, distinctly grown up, many people die all the time. Uh, 
and she, she felt strongly enough about staying alive for the next one and the likelihood of, of her not making it that she was going to write to the author. <laughs> so, do you think, give me a heads up on the plot. Just, you know, just, just tell me what happens because they're so good. <coughs> uh, Princess Academy comes up when you search for magical schools. Uh, Fort Salem, which is just a kick-ass Canadian um, TV show that we binged as well about witches. We like our shows about weird children and, and secret powers. Uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Uh, Georgia Face G on, on Twitter said that she called it Miss Peregrine's Home for Baby Goths and said she'd be very happy to have gone there or to have attended. And I, I must say, I feel exactly the same way. Um, but what I thought I'd start with is um, the most famous magical school. Um, and the most contentious at the moment, um, and, and a really interesting way in. One of the reasons why Hogwarts is such an interesting way in is because it has been written about, it feels like almost as much as Hamlet at this point. It's very hard, very hard to find some aspect of the novel that has not been covered significantly. Um, I'll start off with uh, the Alison Baker article University of East London. She's a, it's an education research one. And she was saying, do children perceive social class in children's fantasy texts? So a lot of interest in cultural capital and what children need to know before they read a text. But then she didn't really frame this particularly, but I thought it was really interesting that the two texts she chose for this year six school of largely working class children were number one, Harry Potter, which she gave them as a text. And number two, um, the first in His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman um, with Lyra and, and Oxford, both of which have this academic school setting, both of which are absolutely steeped in the British and quite specifically English social class system. And then she's like, what will the children make of this? Will they understand it? Will they? Well, turns out these poor year sixes couldn't handle Philip Pullman at all. So she gave them a graphic novel version, which they liked, but they, they did read the Harry Potter. And the sort of takeaway conclusion from that let me just read this here. Well, first of all, when they were reading it, now she's given all of these children in order to anonymize them, I'll warn you in advance, she's given them names from children's media properties, which makes, <laughs> makes it a bit odd to read. One of them, for example, she's named Peppa Pig. So you get Peppa Pig contributing her thoughts. Anyway, and one of them's called Gay, which she did say, maybe she should have rethought that one in light of, sorry if you're listening, lady who wrote this article. Anyway, the girls felt there was a lack of girl characters and that their default character was Hermione due to a lack of other options. Gay and Peppa Pig only named characters that they didn't like because they were bullies, Dudley Dursley and his friend Piers. None of the children wanted to go to Hogwarts. That's what I found interesting. So when they went to these working class kids, they did the whole magical, you've been chosen, sorting hat shenanigans. And all the kids were like, yeah, great. Don't want to go there. Never. I'd rather die. Why? Why didn't they want to go to Hogwarts? Let's find out. Most stated that they would miss pets, family, and the familiarity of home. Grace expressed concern about new food, saying that she had eaten Bertie Botts's every flavor beans and they were disgusting. So <laughs> fair, absolutely fair. And Gay, who again, the unfortunately named Gay, um, explained, I play football and they play Quidditch. I don't think I could play Quidditch. And as uh, the, the uh, author says here, this could demonstrate his fear of not fitting in and a recognition of the cultural capital required to be successful in a school setting. Um, 
what was fascinating about Northern Lights was that they they just didn't have the cultural capital to recognize almost anything going on in the story. Um, there's some discussion of, of the wine and stuff or, or when it might be set. Um, and in her conclusion, she says, initial analysis of my findings indicates that children do perceive power imbalances, including those of social class in children's literature. Um, Gay articulated his inability to see himself as a Hogwarts student through his focus on himself as a footballer rather than a Quidditch player. Grace expressed her concerns about unfamiliar food. I mean, in fairness, that, that's a very bland way of describing being horrified of food that might explode in your mouth and taste like vomit but um and none of the children wanted to leave the familiarity of family and home to go to a magical boarding school during the discussion about northern lights most of the groups did not have the cultural capital to understand the time or location that the book is set in um team awesome i, I think that's the the name given to the collective children could see power imbalances in adult child relationships and between children but lacked the language to discuss the exploitation of magical creatures in Rowling and Stroud's work it's not possible to make recommendations from the findings of such a small group with incomplete data but to further this research I would like to explore giving children the vocabulary to discuss inequalities of social class in children's literature now one of the things that's interesting about that is that um approaches to the boarding school genre which essentially most of our magical schools that we'll be looking at today that you mentioned are boarding school stories so boarding school story obviously we've got you know a long 19th century tradition but it, it really kicks off in the late 19th century early 20th century distinctly unmagical um there's been a lot written about them but one of the things that 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 the boarding school paradigm does is it allows the child so the argument goes to sort of model the world in which they live to model the power relations of the adult world through the microcosm of the school so what happens when it becomes a magical school and why is it happening now there's um heidi drake i haven't mentioned her yet she mentioned the worst witch and um the school there is miss cackle's academy for witches why that one's quite crucial believe it or not is in the history of boarding school stories, which was such a huge genre in this country, um, as English teacher mentioned, she she loved St. Trini. And so from everywhere to, you know, beloved popular culture to the books churned out for children, the chalet school books and the, you know, Edith of the Fourth Form type books and, you know, all of it, enormous industry. After the war, something distinct happens to them. And in 1974, um, the worst witch turns it into a magical boarding school. This is this is the argument. It's quite a persuasive argument. Um, I'll just read you the beginning of Miss Cackle's Academy for Witches. Miss um, Cackle's Academy for Witches, first page of The Worst Witch, stood at the top of a high mountain surrounded by a pine forest. It looked more like a prison than a school with its gloomy gray walls and turrets. Sometimes you could see the pupils on their broomsticks flitting like bats above the playground wall, but usually the place was half hidden in mist so that if you had glanced up the mountain, you would probably not have noticed the building was there at all. Everything about the school was dark and shadowy. There were long, narrow corridors and winding staircases. And of course, there were the girls themselves, dressed in black gym slips, black stockings, black hobnail boots, grey shirts and black and grey ties. Even their summer dresses were black and grey checked. The only touches of colour were the sashes around their gym slips, a different colour for each house, and the school badge, which was a black cat sitting on a yellow moon. There were so many rules that you couldn't do anything without being told off, and there seemed to be tests and exams every week. 
very much a sweat the small stuff setting Calcal Academy, right? Very much no looking out of the window. You're going to sit up straight, track the teacher with your eyes and follow all the rules. <laughs> Mildred Hubble was in her first year at the school. She was one of those people who always seemed to be in trouble. She didn't exactly mean to break rules and annoy the teacher, but things just seemed to happen whenever she was around. You could rely on Mildred to have her hat on back to front or her bootlaces trailing along the floor. She couldn't walk from one end of a corridor to the other without someone yelling at her. And nearly every night she was writing lines or being kept in. Not that there was anywhere to go if you were allowed out. Anyway, she had lots of friends, even if they did keep their distance in the potion laboratory. And her best friend Maud stayed loyally by her through everything, however hair-raising. They made a funny pair, for Mildred was tall and thin with long plaits, which she often chewed absentmindedly, while Maud was short and Tubby had round glasses and wore her hair in bunches. Now, the really interesting thing, if we put the worst witch at the beginning of our magical boarding school stories, if we say this is the Genesis story, which is a bit of a stretch, right? But just work with me here, um, is that she's terrible. She's, she's terrible at magic and she never gets any better. So unlike so many of the other characters we can think of, you know, who've got secret magical talents and that's this, such an amazing thing. It's just the endless, wonderful origin story when the, the hero discovers their secret magical talent that means they're actually not like the rest of us, really. They're a demigod or, you know, really good at Quidditch or whatever Harry Potter's power is supposed to be. I don't like Harry Potter, the character. I'll, I'll be banging on about that terrible human being um Mildred's awful she's got no she just, there's no point at which Mildred's secret power reveals itself and and then she saves the day she is not that character um as I'll be discussing she's actually coded there quite specifically in a way that um you'll recognize from any fight we've ever had on edu twitter as being a, a dyspraxic child a neurodivergent child an autistic child any child who doesn't fit into who who has physical problems conforming with the rules of the institution. Um, she doesn't fit the academic fit of the institution. Um, I'm going to reread it again, thinking about Catherine Burblesing and Michaela Academy and just sort of full on see Michaela as, as Miss Cackle's school of magical witchcraft or whatever. Um, because it's that conversation. How, how does a child who's neurodivergent fit into a highly structured world? And then why does this appeal to a huge range of children? Of course, how do we all fit into institutions? So that's the function it serves there. Um, so really very enjoyable, but but that's what's going on. I've got I've interwoven this with an awful lot of sort of academic writing that I've found. And this one is um, Ulrika Pasold, the other in school stories, a phenomenon in British children's literature. So she tracks the the history of school literature until we get to the 70s. And we have the birth of the Witch Academy, right? Which she then has Harry Potter at the end of. Only that bit wasn't available on free on Google Books. So I'm afraid I didn't read it. That's my secret, guys. I'm outstanding at research as long as it's in the page preview capture available on Google Books. It's just don't don't ever tell my former dissertation supervisors that that's, that's my Achilles heel with research. So she says... Jill Murphy's Worst Witch series is a new chapter of the school story. So um, the classic school story had declined after the Second World War, reached a final peak of popularity with Enid Blyton's The Twins at St. Clair's and Mallory Towers. And then the genre split up and with Centrinian's or the Molesworth books, it became farce. Right. So um, 
other authors still succeeded in incorporating the topic of school in their books, but now they were day schools, not boarding schools. So we've distinctly left the boarding school era as a relic of, of pre-war times. So she then ties this to, <laughs> I think you've just decreed that KB is henceforth to be dubbed Miss C in any Twitter spot. Well, yeah, I, I think I've been calling Michaela Hogwarts of Wembley Hogwarts for a really long time, but only in my direct messages. I think it's time to take it on to Maine. Um, right. So uh, exemplified in the Narnia books or Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, we have this birth of fantasy, but it's not being incorporated into the school stories yet. Um, and what various commentators have argued um, we learn here is that the advent of the witch school might tie very much to um, an attempt to rehabilitate conventions and traditions through a new mode. So the argument here by someone called Sinfield is that at the end of a war that had shown the terrible consequences of fascist ideology, that had ended with the use of a weapon of unprecedented power, that had produced a popular impetus towards social reform, one might have expected political movement, but the instinct of literary intellectuals was to defend traditional ground. So her argument is that, therefore, um, well, she goes to Sans O'Connor, who claims that many of these younger authors who were kind of quite literally taught by C.S. Lewis, she goes through a variety of the um, fantasy authors for young adult fiction, including um, Susan Cooper, whose Darkest Rising books, absolutely glorious magical power child stories um that they were all quite literally educated at oxford by some of these you know behemoths of fantasy especially c.s lewis so she's saying that many of these younger authors use fantasy to recall an england of the past and thus can avoid overtly racist and sexist attitudes by ignoring the new minorities and the new power women had gained so kind of in the the 50s 60s 70s 80s version the argument here is that by taking schools magical, by making them witchcraft, you're essentially removing race and racial tension from a kind of contemporary portrayal, which is interesting. Right? I think that's interesting, especially if you think about any of the kind of relentless critiques <clears throat> over the last 10 years <clears throat> of Hogwarts and the way um, Rowling erases race or, or is very clumsy surrounding race. Um, but but it can be just removed entirely from the, those are muggle concerns. When we're in the world of witchcraft, just we have entirely different systems of prejudice and speciation and stuff. But the, so that the, the impulse to go to the boarding school as a model is a, an impulse to, to retreat from the complexity of modernity. That would be the argument, right? So fantasy is often considered to possess an escapist tendency that would be enhanced by combining it with the school story. Um, but, you know, is that what's going on? Is that what is going on? Um, so going back to Ulrika's argument, she says most of those witch school stories still contain a link to the real world. So you might be at Hogwarts Wembley, but, you know, Ark Elvin is just down the road and you might have friends there. You might be Harry Potter, but you've still got the Dursleys. You might be Hermione, but you've still got your dentist parents. There's there's a kind of access point for the reader to imagine. It's interesting, again, that those year sixes that we started with didn't want to go to Hogwarts at all um, and couldn't decode the class markers and were 
anxious around um, a body of knowledge, cultural capital that the children at Hogwarts seem to possess that they didn't, which kind of ties quite nicely to this idea that the boarding school is actually this sort of trans-historical model, even when it's full of witches, that represents a nostalgia for a very specifically English boarding school past and the social class and and homogenous population attached to that. Um, so let's look at what she says about worst witch. Yeah, issues such as class, gender and ethnicity hardly play a role in the series. And once more, we can find many of the traditional aspects. Once more, we follow our protagonist through her school years at a boarding school, Miss Cackle's Academy for Witches. She differs only slightly from the traditional stories school story protagonist with average abilities though she is referred to as the worst witch in the whole school she nevertheless manages to turn people into pig snails and herself into an ant right so in all of the previous boarding school things that you know as we're pointing out here worst witch inhabit the the protagonist is just a bit mediocre they're not great they don't have magical powers they're not the boy who lived um but let's go on to harry potter because he inhabits a distinctly different universe where it's the, the chosen one, the secret genius, the origin story of the hero that we're concerned with there instead. Now, I'm going to start with some pedagogy of Professor Snape. And I'm going to do that. I'm, if you've listened to this show before, you will have heard me talking about this scene because I think it's really crucial to understanding what kind of pedagogy is going on at Hogwarts. And then fascinatingly, I found this amazing paper. Oh, it's possibly, possibly a million pages long. I don't know. I stopped after about 30 pages. That <laughs> goes programmatically through the history of writing about Harry Potter and educational theory. And indeed, every single classroom in Harry Potter and breaks down the teaching and learning style. So you are, you guys are in for a treat on this one. So Harry Potter, I previously identified as the child I would least like to teach in all of um, all of children's literature. Um, and I said at the time, and I'll say it again to anyone who can be asked to listen, he's the hero of a series whose actual protagonist should be Neville and Luna, right? Now, I've been saying that for years, but having researched boarding school stories um, yesterday, and having researched sort of the history of tropes of boarding school stories, I realized why it is that I immediately identified Neville and Luna as the main characters, as what should be the main characters, because they are mediocre children, right? They're the, they're the classic heroes of this particular genre that we find ourselves in, the magical school story or the boarding school story, where they become stand-ins for awkward, nerdy, difficult, confused, alienated, scared children interacting with with a world of what seems like extreme competence in cultural capital in, in all of these things. But but instead we get Harry. Why not Hermione? Why is Hermione not the most irritating child? Well, I said at the time, and I'll say it again, she's a girl who's given the gift of time travel and uses it to do extra homework. Just what? Why? Just the worst use of time travel imaginable. And I hate homework at the best of times. Um, She's the girl who you know will be messaging you on show my homework six seconds after you should have posted the learning assignment. And when you check your email, she'll have sent you a message there too. And she'll forward it to you again the next day if you haven't put it up to get into an oppositional defiant relationship with Hermione Granger. The student who will voluntarily rewrite essays and ask you to read them when you're on your way to get coffee. That one, right? So why Harry and not Hermione? Now, my problems with Harry will be laid bare in this 
this uh, investigation of the pedagogy of Snape. So this is the first lesson with Snape, and let's track it using using what we know about edu theory now. Snape, like Flitwick, started the class by taking the roll call, and like Flitwick, he paused at Harry's name. Ah, yes, he said softly, Harry Potter, our new celebrity. Draco Malfoy and his friends Crabbe and Goyle sniggered behind their hands. Snape finished calling the names and looked up at the class. His eyes were black like Hagrid's, but they had none of Hagrid's warmth. They were cold and empty and made you think of dark tunnels. So I think we can agree that Snape is running the room here, right? And following safeguarding procedures and school procedures, he's done the register straight away. And now he is being seen looking to use a teach like a champion's phrase. He is looking around the room. He is meeting every child. You are here to learn the subtle science and exact art of potion making, he began. He spoke in barely more than a whisper, but they caught every word. Like Professor McGonagall, Snape had the gift of keeping a class silent without effort. So he's establishing boundaries, expectations and relationships. He's doing the role of teacher as expert with clearly communicated extremely high expectations. He's teaching to the top and he's teaching from the front people, right? There's no constructivist learning here. As there is a little foolish wand waving here, many of you will hardly believe this is magic. I don't expect you will really understand the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes, the delicate power of liquids that creep through human veins, bewitching the mind and snaring the senses. And I can teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory, even stop a death if you aren't as big a bunch of dunderheads as I usually have to teach. Passion for his subject, outstanding in the teacher's standards, always there to be congratulated on his subject knowledge better than anyone and really communicating that we've been arguing about entertaining lessons what's more entertaining than glory death and fame who knows outstanding disciplinary knowledge more silence followed this little speech harry and ron exchanged looks with raised eyebrows hermione granger was on the edge of her seat and looked desperate to start proving that she wasn't a dunderhead now this is the first sign of disruptive behavior from potter and weasley low-level disruption that will become the most constant feature of their classroom personae. And so, very appropriately, Cantab Kitty asked me to talk about Snape and cold calling. Snape immediately cold calls Harry, who is visibly not paying attention, right? His eyes are not on the teacher. He is not tracking the teacher. Potter, said Snape suddenly, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? <laughs> Mage on the stage, that chap there is saying, yes. Yeah, I want to be the sage on the stage, but with the ability to turn you into a frog. That sounds great. What would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? Powdered root of what to an infusion of what? Harry glanced at Ron, who looked as stumped as he was. Hermione's hand had shot into the air. Right, Snape is checking prior knowledge. He's looking to see what is in Harry's potion schema so that he can build on it by activating that prior knowledge, right? Tying it in a progressive pr curriculum with clear curriculum intent to, you know, the stages of learning. But solid stuff, does Harry know it? I don't know, sir, said Harry. Snape's lips curled into a sneer. Tut, tut, fame clearly isn't everything. He ignored Hermione's hand. Let's face it, we all ignore the Hermione's. We have to, because Doug Lamov told us to, guys, right? No, no hands up means Hermione doesn't get called on. We're using our cold calling to be much more pedagogically rigorous because how else can we find out who's learning? 
Um, let's try again, Potter. Where would you look if I told you to find me in Bezoar? See how he's prompting for an extension from the student's answer, not accepting that refusal to engage? Hermione stretched her hand as high into the air as it would go without her leaving her seat, but Harry didn't have the faintest idea what a Bezoar was. He tried not to look at Malfoy, Crabbe and Goyle, who was shaking with laughter. I don't know, sir. Thought you wouldn't open a book before coming, eh, Potter? Right, so speaking as an A-level teacher primarily here, Harry's not done the summer bridging work, has he? He's not. He's not done any of the assignments he was supposed to do. He's not read anything. And all of that has been skillfully uncovered by Snape and his cold calling techniques. Advanced expertise there. Harry forced himself to keep looking into those cold black eyes. He had looked through his books at the Dursleys, but did Snape expect him to remember everything in 1,000 Magical Herbs and Fungi? Well, no, Harry. Just one thing, actually, that you failed at. So, num reason number one by Harry is just the most annoying child in the world. But also, that kind of ridiculous exercise in applying the principles of Teach Like a Champion to what Snape is doing in the classroom, that's when we get to Melissa C. Johnson's Virginia Commonwealth University thesis on Wands or Quills, Lessons in Pedagogy from Harry Potter. I'm just going to dip in and out of this because it's completely fascinating. Um, in discussions of boarding school, magical boarding schools and teaching, as in everything else, we seem to find what we want. So we'll see some gamified learning arguments. We'll see some arguments saying that direct instruction is being sort of promoted. We'll see other arguments saying, no, no, it's all constructivist learning. Um, adventure-based learning to engage students that's being promoted but so th this is from a section where Melissa Johnson is kind of covering what various people have said she says rather wryly and it took me a while to realize that quite often she is being amused um we'll get to, we get to Professor Flitwick <laughs> ah. anyway so she says um I'm not the first academic to examine the models of teaching and learning in Harry Potter Right. So one of the first people who did it was apparently Renee Dickinson, um, who who wrote a book called Harry Potter Pedagogy. What we can learn about teaching from J.K. Rowling in 2006. Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining in my head, I've got I've got a tiny Adam Boxer. I'm thinking about reacting with body as if these were body blows. The things I'm about to say flinching when I get to some of these these are key points. An English professor who teaches composition. Dickinson uses Bloom's taxonomy of learning domains as a tool for measuring the effectiveness of the instructional methods of eight characters at Hogwarts. I should quit teaching and just write a book along these lines. Um, yes, so let's find out. Uh, Andrea Bixler's 2011 article, What We Muggles Can Learn About Teaching from Hogwarts, goes back to Dickinson's conclusions after the publication of Deathly Hallows and Reevaluates the educators at Hogwarts School. It's a bit like Ofsted coming back, really, I think, just to do an inspection of the teaching and learning. Uh, off which it should be called. Um, based on three pedagogical principles derived from How People Learn, published by the National Research Council in 2000 for science educators. Based upon these principles, she writes, okay, I just love how serious these things are. So I'm just going to build up to this one again so I can deliver her scathing judgment. Based upon these principles, she writes, Hogwarts does not live up to my standards for quality instruction. Ooh, burn. 
Jennifer Conn focuses more specifically on the first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, how that might help clinical teachers hone their pedagogical approaches by using the teachers at Hogwarts as both positive role models and also as examples of what to avoid. Um, so the thing of it is, as she says, though many scholars have analysed educational themes, most of them find that the most significant learning experiences in the Harry Potter books often occur despite rather than because of classroom instruction, and all of them occur outside of the classroom setting. Uh, Dickinson finds that Harry Potter and... Uh, Harry Potter and Headmaster Albus Dumbledore are two of the three most effective instructors in the book, despite the fact that neither is officially a teacher at the school or teaching a class in the required curriculum. And, and they write, Hogwarts learning culture, however, favours the annihilation of direct instruction in preference for practical life experience. The annihilation of direct instruction. So who are our direct instructors? Well, I've, I've, suggested that Snape is very much a direct instructor but he's not is he he's a mage on the stage as uh, that chap there said um, he's doing some Socratic questioning he's doing you know being seen looking doing some questioning he's not standing at the front and delivering in your very very classic sense um, and there is a teacher who stands at the front and delivers albeit a dead teacher uh, right so in the end Dickinson finds finds the fact that, um, oh yes, no, the pedagogies of the teachers, rather than educating the students in their subjects, often force the students to teach themselves. Ha-ha, constructivist. So in the end, Dickinson finds that to be a positive trait of Hogwarts education rather than a negative one, and advises her fellow educators to follow Dumbledore's lead in, creating a, and in brackets, mostly safe atmosphere in which the students are given basic tools and then are encouraged to discover on their own and apply and practice their learning. If anybody is out there listening to this thinking, I want to be an educator like Dumbledore and I'm going to provide an education just as safe for my students as he provided for the students at Hogwarts, I advise you to retire now or quit. <laughs> Ah, oh, as someone said yesterday, they do detentions in, in a, a forest full of spiders. They, it's a safeguarding nightmare, an absolute safeguarding nightmare. None of these experiences are safe whatsoever. Many children die. And if they don't, they're, they have to be in the hospital for a very long time. Um, yeah, but it, perhaps a savage indictment of discovery learning rather than an encouraging model for it. Uh, Margaret Booth, an educational psychologist, and her 11-year-old daughter Grace wrote a book, an article, jointly authored, called Tips from Harry Potter for American Schools. Um, and the 11-year-old and her mother praised the curriculum of Hogwarts for its emphasis on real-world practical problem-solving. Then there's uh, Mary Black and Marilyn Eisenwein, who are sort of legends in the field of Potter and education studies, who approach the books through the discipline of education, and they agree that practical, hands-on discovery learning is, is the, the main lesson to be learned from Hogwarts, um, as well as cooperative learning. So, and, and I, I told you, there's a lot of people have done this. History professor Catherine McDaniel Daniel offers a dissenting view on the efficacy of indirect learner-centered instruction. Finally, we've got some trads entering the, the argument. How is, how is Catherine McDaniel gonna push back on this? Let's find out. Um, 
she says she makes a case for the power of lecturing despite professor binz's ineffective techniques in the history of magic there's we're going to have some beautiful analysis of professor binz's lecture style in the second um just so good that it, it caused me to just shut my eyes in joy for a good 30 seconds it's coming up um so building from these foundations what this author's going to do is engage in an analysis of the classroom teaching styles and pedagogies of professors Binns, Umbridge, Snape, McGonagall, Lupin, and Sprout. These analyses will illustrate that students do indeed learn a great deal in the classroom at Hogwarts, but learn best when a pedagogical approach such as active learning is coupled with a supportive, non-threatening, cooperative learning environment in which critical thinking and risk-taking are encouraged and rewarding. I don't, I love academia, but, I do wonder about investing so much intellectual energy in analysing the pedagogical styles of the Harry Potter novels. But hey, here I am contributing to it. So this is the Professor Binns, right? So this is the lecture model. Professor Binns does his style of education stack up. It's really important to remember about Professor Binns is that he's dead. He's a ghost. Professor Binns is described by Rowling as follows. Professor Binns, their ghost teacher, had a wheezy droning voice that was almost guaranteed to cause severe drowsiness within 10 minutes, five in warm weather. He never varied the form of their lesson, but lectured them without pausing while they took notes, or rather gazed sleepily into space. Right, ready for the analysis? Binns's lectures are not designed to provoke critical thinking or even interest, as is illustrated in Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets, when he responds with amazement to Hermione's question about the Chamber of Secrets and the class's interest in his response. Professor Binz's subject, History of Magic, is unlike many of the other more practical or technical courses the students at Hogwarts take because it focuses on teaching students a body of knowledge rather than a particular skill needed to practice witchcraft or wizardry. So knowledge-based education, powerful knowledge, not skills-based education. This distinction, his dull lecturing style, and the fact that he can't remember his students' names may help explain why his students don't find his lessons very interesting. Also, I have to say, as an English teacher, they don't find his lessons very interesting because he's a fictional character and so are they. There is no, there is no real-world analysis to be done here. Why are they like this? Because that's the way the story's written. God's sake. Anyway, um, since he is deceased, he may not have had the opportunity to improve his lecture techniques through faculty development opportunities or training in clicker technology. Let's just take that one more time. Since Professor Binns is deceased, he may not have had the opportunity to improve his lecture techniques through faculty development opportunities or training in clicker technology. So there we go. Ah, right. Now it's time for the news with Gail Glenn. And when we come back, I will be focusing on something other than learning and teaching styles in Harry Potter, I promise, as exciting as they are. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. 
Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In England, schools will have to open for no less than 32.5 hours per week from September. At the moment, the head teacher with the governing body decides the length of the school day in England and 14% of schools will be affected. Nadim Sahawi, the Education Secretary, also wants to encourage multi-academy trusts. He said, The evidence is clear that a family of schools that is really tightly managed, really well supported, especially through COVID, has delivered better educational outcomes for children. So strong, and I underline strong, multi-academy trusts is the infrastructure we need to complete and deliver. According to The Sun, figures show that 75% of schools had days that met the average length of between 6 hours 15 minutes and 6 hours 35 minutes. Kevin Courtney of the National Educational Union said schools and pupils had been left battered and bruised by the pandemic and a more sophisticated approach was needed. Paul Whiteman of the Head Teachers Union, the NAHT, said simply adding five or ten minutes to a day is unlikely to bring much, if any, benefit.
Gillian Mackay, a Lanarkshire MSP, is calling on North Lanarkshire Council to write off the remaining £28,011 that remains outstanding for school dinners. Most of that money is an outstanding debt owed for children at primary school, despite all P1 to P5 across Scotland now being entitled to free school meals. Ms Mackay said, Children can't get a good education if they are hungry at school. I believe that North Lanarkshire Council rightly ensures every pupil has a meal at lunchtime, even if they don't have the money to cover it. But these figures make it clear that debts are being chased from families who simply can't pay. With the cost of living crisis putting huge pressure on family finances, this is the right time to write off all outstanding school meal debt. Pursuing the debt is causing stress and embarrassment for pupils and their families. But I know that staff are deeply uncomfortable asking pupils for money they know the family does not have. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk VPN. For those of you thinking, why is Steve talking about an underwear fashion faux pas? A VPN is a virtual private network, and knowing a little bit about them might make you realise you actually need one. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, a VPN changes how internet data is transmitted from a device. It allows the user to be more hidden. I know what you're thinking. I'm no cyber criminal. Why do I want to conceal my data? Well, let's look at three things a VPN can do for you. I'm going to use a phone as an example, but all of these can be applied to any device you can put on the internet. Do you use public networks? A public network may be the Wi-Fi on the bus or train, a local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, any connection that isn't your home. Transmitting data on these networks can potentially allow your data to be intercepted by third parties. Having a VPN allows you to encrypt your data from your device rather than depending on the network you're connecting to. So, when surfing the web while enjoying a burger and fries, you can be confident if you're being intercepted, the data will be useless to the interceptor. The next is shopping online. When connecting to an online shop, some stores use your location and unique device ID to target you. If you're returning to look at a product, the likelihood is you're going to buy it. Knowing this, some stores use clever algorithms to increase the price to maximize their profit. With a VPN, you can mask this data so the price you see is the initial price. The third is some streaming services are blocked by internet providers or unavailable from outside of certain countries. If you're using a VPN, you can choose where to set your location to allow you to see the content you wish to stream. I've not looked at individual providers. Some are free, some are paid for. If you're unsure, find a friend who's using one, ask them about it, and use the same one as them to begin with. They'll <laughs> get free tech support. Make sure you know the terms of service. You don't want the VPN you're using keeping your data, as that would defeat the object in the first place. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm Tabitha McIntosh, and this is The Breakfast Show. And I'm talking today about fantasy schools, the history of sort of boarding schools in children's literature, um, very much centered on England at the moment, although we are about to cross the Atlantic um, and go to Professor Xavier's school for gifted children um 
but I'm going to transition there still using Hogwarts because um, the thing with Hogwarts, as as has become very obvious over the last few years, is that Hogwarts is overwhelmingly um, essentially a it's a it's a neurotypical straight and cisgender space um, that all kinds of adults doing uh, research on pedagogy. I just read you a ton of them, an enormous amount of intellectual energy expended into proving that constructivist learning or direct instruction or any of those things are actually to be found and, and discussed from Hogwarts, blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting to me is what happens when fans get hold of it when children, when young people get hold of it, because unsurprisingly, they're not really interested in methods of instruction. Instead, the magical school, the fantasy school is serving very, very different purposes for them. So um, the great, great research by Jonathan Alexander and Rebecca Black on how autistic young people um, are writing that into Harry Potter fanfic. Just an example of that. In this one that they focus on, Hermione Granger is anxiously awaiting the results from a recent test. It isn't her performance on an exam in a potions course. Instead, the higher-ups at Hogwarts have ordered that she undergo some psychological tests. They'd noticed how quickly she talked, along with her nervous tics. Hermione eventually sees the results. I stared at my parents, blinking my eyes. I knew the results would be here today, but I didn't think the outcome would be like this. Asperger, the paper said. So in this piece of fanfic, you know, she's quite literally diagnosed with autism. Another story, the writer creates a new character, Albus Potter, um, son of Harry Potter, who's autistic and newly enrolled in Hogwarts. Um, these stories engage with um, bias, with neurotypical teachers, with but what, they, what the, the whole experience of autism and, and what's really interesting is because the advert we just listened to called autism a superpower and that's exactly what these young adults are focusing on when they rewrite these stories so as as these two authors say many of the young authors also linked autism to a kind of magic or ability that could be understood at hogwarts as special even advantageous in ways that muggles or normal people wouldn't see in all the stories we analyzed everyone with autism also has magical abilities which I think is completely unsurprising if you yourself are neurodivergent, um, that being drawn to those stories clearly mark you as you're different to your family. You're different to everyone around you. You you have always felt like an anthropologist who's landed in a foreign country and has a, a, a phrase book with which to talk to people and it, it doesn't translate anything properly. But actually it turns out there's a home for you. And that home for you is break bills in The Magicians or that home for you is Hogwarts in the Harry Potter universe, or that home view is you know, very, very different to go back to our worst witch in 1974, where Mildred has zero powers, right? She, she ain't fancy, but she's still, we, it can still work, you know, if we're coding it through neurodiversity, but it's it's a completely different model to the, you're special, you've got superpowers, you are the best. Um, so that, and I've mentioned there as well, the, the sexuality aspect absolutely beautiful introduction to a, an edited collection called Supernatural Youth, The Rise of the Teen Hero in Literature and Popular Culture, edited by Jess Bettis, who you can follow on Twitter. Um, I think an astonishing opening line. For many kids, surviving adolescence is an act of singular heroism and perhaps of wizardry as well. Given that queer and questioning teens are at least 20% more likely to attempt and complete suicide than their straight peers, 
it seems urgent to galvanize a flexible canon of teen literature and culture that carries with it messages of critical hope. And as I'm about to show you, that flexible canon of teen literature and culture that carries with it messages of critical hope is how readers and consumers of media of other kinds of magical schools of Hogwarts, but of all of these other ones have seen that kind of evolving fan-driven canon of otherness finding a place at magical school. So let me go to um, how the X-Men has functioned like that, because the X-Men is just really a fascinating phenomenon. And here I've got um, Jean-Philippe Zanko starting off with his call for community, Charles Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters as a hippie community experience. Now, what I loved about this particular article is that he goes through Superman's family, Spider-Man's family, and then the Fantastic Four. Um, and looks at how the orphan hero is always finding security within a replacement family cell, um, which becomes the medium for integration into human society. So the superpower is otherness, is difference, is, is orphanhood. But at the same time, you're always captured and held and raised within, you know, the white picket fence Americana, or at least the family. Um, he says the Fantastic Four is them. The, the ultimate iteration of the nuclear family as, as the origin of powers, um, which then we could tie to the invisibles or what have you. Um, but the X-Men are very, very different. And I think they offer us a way to think about other things that school stories are doing, especially when it comes to families. In their very first adventures, the X-Men were a curiosity. Uh, Charles Xavier's gifted youngsters, youngsters shared adventures and training, like many other superhero groups, but they also lived together. They shared such symbolic activities as birthday parties or daily dinner. They didn't share a martial association like the Avengers, nor a full family like the Fantastic Four, but they were more than a fellowship. While the Fantastic Four symbolized the modern model of the American family life, can the X-Men be seen as their counterpoint? as a resurgence of what Durkheim, this is a very sociologically driven essay, called the, the primitive family commune. So the X-Men organization sounds paternalist, sounds paternalist with the figure of Professor Charles Xavier as a tutor and teacher whose wisdom, age and disability command respect. However, respect, affection and even love are not enough to build the traditional family relationship of this era. Um, rather than a family, the X-Men take on more of what more what Durkheim called the corporation. Um, so his argument is that it reflects a social phenomenon of the 50s and 60s of youth gangs appearing in all major cities of Western cultures, a teen youth culture, which is counter to the dominant culture, um, in which essentially they're against bourgeoisie social norms, but also this is, you know, saying the X-Men is coming out at the same time as all of these kind of communitarian or communist, um, you know, 1968 commune siege moment. And that's what it's inhabiting is different ways of relating to each other, different ways to be family. So that's that argument. Um, what, what then I'd like to go to is how various queer authors experienced watching or reading the X-Men and, and how they saw it. So they're not looking at the pedagogy. They're not looking at the organization of power. They're very much looking at, at this entire notion of being a mutant, finding a home inside the academy. 
So Joe Harris writing in a 2021 says, when I was growing up, there was nothing I wanted more than to be whisked off to Xavier's school for gifted youngsters in pursuit of a career as an X-Man. For me, the X-Men were the ultimate role models. They were powerful, they fought for good, and some of them even had blue skin and scales. It's only now that I'm older that I realize how influential these heroes were in helping me to come to terms with my sexuality. My early teen years consisted of relentlessly rewatching the X-Men movies, and when that wasn't enough, I turned to bleaching two white stripes in the front of my hair in an effort to look like the character Rogue. More than just a source of inspiration for questionable hairstyles, the films provided me with the role models I needed as a young LGBTQ person. For me, growing up gay always felt like a constant tug of war. I was torn between feeling a certain way and everyone around me telling me I should feel and act in another. The X-Men taught me how to have pride in who I truly am and how to live as my authentic self. It's pretty much universally agreed that the X-Men films and comics can be seen as a metaphor for the queer experience. The X-Men represent a group of people that are outcasts from society. These powerfully gifted beings are hated and feared by the rest of the world and face a stigma that many LGBTQ people can relate to. In the second X-Men film, the character Iceman has to come out to his family as a mutant. His mother responds, have you tried not being a mutant? Simply replace the word mutant with gay or LGBTQ plus and you'll see a stark similarity to what so many LGBTQ young people go through when coming out. Um, another personal account, um, and this one, X-Men, bad queer civil rights crusaders, not hetero heroes. Um, the X-Men are presented in much more palatable heterosexual bodies, but they are very much a coded narrative on two branches of queer protest and resistance, says Sean O'Toole. So you don't need, as both of these authors are saying, um, and as all of the fanfic of, of Harry Potter shows us, you don't need overt um, neurodivergence or divergence from cis heteronormativity for people to find that in the characters, in the model, in the whole notion of mutants, special children, special, special powers that will find a home somewhere. Uh, rather than the sort of negative or hostile, you know, version of the boarding school that that we see in um the worst witch right where, where she's sort of haplessly bumbling through it breaking all the rules as she goes unable to keep herself tidy enough for the sweat the small stuff setting these ones are uh imagined safe space communities which is what um sean o'toole writes about here i found myself dwelling on certain scenes in the context of safe spaces particularly regarding xavier's school for gifted youngsters and its regularity for being invaded threatened or destroyed by outside forces intent on harming xavier's young students in the wider x-men universe the destruction of xavier's school also occurs with some degree of frequency despite the professor's continued and unrelenting insistence that humanity and mutant kind can live in peaceful coexistence Xavier is consistent on this ideology that no matter how much death and danger his students experience, he rebuilds the school time and time again and redeclares it a safe space for young mutants to learn how to realize their potential. However, Xavier never examines the point of young people harnessing potential without also having the agency to participate and use that potential. Potential plus agency equals power, and the mutants in the X-Men stories never seem to solve that equation. So what, what Sean O'Toole is looking at here, as I think a really interesting way of looking at it, like it's the, the X-Men as, as an underlying metaphor 
for LGBTQ plus or for neurodivergence, for any of those things, is, is pretty, pretty standard, you know, interpretation, as they've said. The insistence on showing a safe space with a safe adult who nurtures and cares, the idea that the school is constantly under threat, and we see that in Hogwarts as well as in the um, School for Gifted Children, they, they're constantly under threat, constantly restored, constantly made back into a safe space by the guiding adult. But as Sean O'Toole is asking here, and as really anyone who's finished the, the Hogwarts series will say is, but what happens when they're adults? What is there in the adult world? I mean, quite notoriously, the adult world for anyone leaving Hogwarts is what, three jobs? It'd be a knock, work, work, be a fed, work for the FBI, which is what Harry does, run one of the three shops in town, or I don't know, that's it, right? <laughs> there are no other jobs in the Harry Potter universe. There's no, there's no clear role for, for any of these people. Um, and same thing with the X-Men. There is no, there's no empowered safe space. There's just this perpetual adolescence, this perpetual moment of, of homecoming, of finding community, that community being under threat and that community being reestablished. But, but yeah, no, no moving on from there. Um, and just, I think that's one of the reasons why JK Rowling, uh, over the, since 2019, JK Rowling's gradual moving towards a position where she is, you know, one of the loudest and most visible gender critical people on the planet at the moment. Obviously, even Vladimir Putin is, is you know, uh, tying her as the public figure associated with with uh, being anti-trans, even though I know she's said a million times she's not anti-trans, she's very supportive of trans people, but she is seen as. One of the reasons why that was so wrenching for so many younger readers um, whether they be anyone who grew up with it or anybody reading it now, is because of the capacity of the magical boarding school to function as queer coding, as neurodivergence coding, as a space where people who feel different and alienated have a safe space, where there is a figure like Dumbledore to actually be a terrible safeguarding risk, but then probably Professor Xavier is too. Um, we see the same thing in the Rick Riordan series, the Percy Jackson, like all of those characters who are demigods start off as children in school systems that cannot handle their neurodivergence. So they are um, ADHD, overwhelmingly, they all have um, ADHD. Some of them are, are like overtly autistic. Um, increasingly, as the novels have gone on and different things, Rick Riordan's introduced transgender characters, um, as well as agender characters, uh, queer characters. So in, in those ones, Again, all of that is is coded as not just a superpower, but actual heritage of the gods, the sort of different whole history of, of, of yeah, you're not just different from other people, you're better than other people. You are utterly magical. Right. I have so much more to say about this, and I'm sure you have so many more ways in which you'd like to investigate this pedagogy. But I had three hours sleep last night because of a huge family emergency and a set of obligations. So I'm going to finish this early today. Um, thank you very much for listening. I'm really fascinated by this topic. So any other magical schools, how they fit into this idea of, so we've gone from the kind of post-war erasure of the boarding school to the recreation of the boarding school in The Worst Witch, um, the idea that maybe magic and the boarding school are ways of avoiding 
um, you know, complexities of identity in the 20th century. You don't have to talk about race, gender, sexuality, if you just transpose it to some magical world, to then looking at how young people and the wider culture have dealt with those allegedly complexity-free spaces by pouring complexity into them. So in fact, the, the very things that are supposed to be erasing race and neurodivergence and sexuality and, and gender difference um, become the thing that, that they allow discussion of, right? the, the, place where, the place where people can feel at home and safe, at least temporarily until the next invasion. Right. I've been Tabitha McIntosh. This has been The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much for tuning in and I will see you next week for a much more planned and organised show. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.